Welcome to Voicecraft, a context for transformative philosophy, cultivating culture, and the craft of voice. What you're about to hear is an experimental session named Elder Circle, welcoming on this occasion the musician and philosopher Alex Ebert, known by many as the singer-songwriter for Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, and increasingly among a network of thinkers and philosophers seeking to understand the shifting dynamics and possibilities of the paradigms which underlie our cultural moment. Held in the Voicecraft Network, the essence of this session sought to co-create a context that draws out the lived and living journey of a particular person, and in so doing, connect with the significance a voice is drawn to share with the whole. That is, a collective process whereby the group seeks to welcome the daimon, the soul or genius of a person, to transmit the gift of their learning, perception and expression to a gathered community or network context. You can read the full network invitation and the invited praxis of the session in the show notes. Welcome to Elder Circle. Now a little bit from the inside, Alex, because we've got to know each other a little bit. Two broad words come to mind. One is music, and the other is philosophy. And from reading some comments you've shared here and there in your writings, I also know the seeking in your life, the effort you've made toward applying yourself to creative expression, to have been full-blooded in an important way there's been something pressing about it intense about it sort of necessary given this is a little bit about the story how do you relate to your own creativity this relationship to intensity and the person you've been and the person you've become man it's funny i was i was just talking about this with my uh, somatic therapist the question being what exactly um is it about walking into a gentrified cafe and ordering a stack of pancakes for my daughter and looking around at the clientele that infuriates me to the point of uh, almost a sort of messianic cacophony of uh, prejudice where I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is so wrong. This is wrong. Everyone in here is just wrong. And, um, and I'm really upset. And that is the thing that has driven me from the beginning. One of the first things I got in trouble for when I was five, well, one of the first things I got in trouble for in my life, I was five years old and they showed us a, a new jungle gym. It was made of tires and chains. And they sat us all in front of the teachers and they said, um, okay, we got a new jungle gym, but just so you all know, um, there are some rules. And they started to go over the sort of rules. And I remember 
uh, getting up, walking over to where the teachers were, interrupting them, facing the class and telling them, telling the class, no, 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 no. This is how you use the jungle gym. And then proceeding just to go start climbing it. And uh, I, my parents got called in. I almost got kicked out of the, um, the elementary school. And the only way I was able to stay in is my mother bartered with them and said, I'll put him in therapy. And from that point on, I was in therapy for the rest of my childhood, uh, being told that I was wrong, that something about me was pathologically wrong. And yet, to me, I was able to maintain a strand despite accruing an incredible amount of resentment at everybody else for saying that I was wrong. I was able to maintain a strand of truth, which was, this is how you climb the jungle gym for real. I know that I'm in trouble for saying it, but that was the truth. And that there was something that I was able to maintain about that um, that protected me from being pathologized all my life. Um, and at a certain point, it built up into like, you know, a, an ego that was a protection sort of show. Um, and then I was able to sort of, you know, let that immolate and, uh, and still feel somehow protected without, the, without the, so much of a show. But when it comes to my creativity, my creativity was the means through which I could communicate that frustration and have it convey itself in a way that might actually be absorbed. And that's been creativity for me ever since. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Edward Sharp in the Magnetic Zeros, for instance, was born out of pure frustration. Uh, I was looking around at everything. I was like, you know what, everybody, and, and at myself too, everybody's afraid of being earnest. This is 2006, 2007. Oh, I remember being on stage being afraid to smile because smiling was lame. I remember how earnestness was just the lamest thing possible. It was like, die hippie scum, you know? The only times I would smile on stage if I was just freshly bleeding, like from a, some gash in my face from diving off stage or something. And, um, and so it was about this uh, almost, again, sort of messianic fuck you, this, this earnestness that was like, no, I'm going to uh, do the most punk rock thing available, which is actually to be a fucking earnest hippie and smile and have a good time. And it was, uh, that was a, a defiance, you know, uh, that I wanted to convey. And of, <laughs> of course it got um, uh, iterated on and turned into a slick thing. And now that earnestness is used to sell Hondas across the world. And now I'm sort of figuring out what else. Beautiful. Well, I will read out a question here, which isn't something I was planning on doing, but given it's here, what do you think continues to cultivate the conviction to your authenticity of your own inner knowing? And that's a question 
Ronya's posed. I think it flows quite nicely there because you've you've you know this this uh this image in the jungle gym is is a is a good one. That's there's a lot of like I can I can feel that. And then I'm just wondering about this this relationship on stage where you're 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 recognizing what in some sense the 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 cultural scene that uh the the social status mechanism is influencing you to do or not do and yet there's a recognition and orientation of how perhaps you both want and desire and ought to be in that moment and so this question of what do you think continues to cultivate your sense of that inner knowing this relationship between authenticity and inner knowing the way that i translate that question is uh once a thread is picked up and you've overcome whatever the obstacles are and you find yourself in an inertia of um creative explosion and it's close cheek to cheek with the initial impetus um there's a very pure sensation to the creation there's this sense of um it's springing directly from your heart um the interesting very classical problem is that once that initial velocity becomes terminal and is simply inertia there is a repetition of motion through space which self manifests as brand or whatever you like and um and so in that in that there's this sort of inert unity there's this lack of becoming in a state of being and in which sort of contemplation creeps back in and um and it's in that state that i'm sort of able to survey really uh, i guess my existential predicament uh, what have i done what am i doing where am i going and is it will i be satisfied having died looking back and reflecting on the life that i led um <laughs> and the the answer is um i can tell you right now i i have had moments where the answer is a pretty good job ebert right now it's uh no no i would be really um disappointed in the life i've lived and that is what uh keeps my conviction sort of aligned with my authenticity and my inner knowing um because ultimately as you sort of mentioned at the beginning there is a something a burning a a a striving um for this thing this thing and and i guess we could call that thing authenticity but not in the sort of westernized individualistic sort of 
find your authentic oneself, but rather this sort of rhizomic, identityless um, core that wants to express itself as it is, when it is, in any form that it is. And you know, each of us know every moment that we're not doing that until we can become insulated from that uh, inauthenticity, from the inertia of not doing the thing that we know that we could or should be doing. And, um, and that, for me, I'm almost, uh, I'm existentially allergic to that. Uh, the most suicidal I've ever been in my life uh, was definitely just preceding the, uh, the Edward Sharp uh, moment. And I had become, uh, I, I had another band and I was in the, this sort of matrix of um, sarcastic, ironic, sardonic, rock and roll, snarling, Elvis Presley, punk rock sort of inertia. And I was on a major label and my band was called I'm a Robot. And I had started to sort of feel like a robot. And I was doing these things sort of by rote. And I had a girlfriend and we got a house and I was at this and everything was sort of like in its place. And I became um, genuinely, like, like genuinely every moment of the day I was suicidal. And I remember making a choice. Uh, I'm, I'm either going to kill myself for real, instead of just thinking all day about which beams in the building could support my weight. And, um, or uh, I was going to, to fix this. And the only thing that came to my mind was to be like a child, to go back in my mind to before I was any of these things to actually the age of five, before I was put into sort of the pathologizing uh, uh, rut of, uh, of, of sort of, therapy and um and act as if i was five and i would start walking around just thinking i was five i mean this is really basic uh practice i started looking out the window like as if i was a kid i i played on the i, I literally would just you know just do childish things uh and i wrote a song i remember that had no chorus it's like what a what a what a childish thing to do. What an idiot, what idiot would write a song without a chorus? How could that possibly go anywhere? And all of a sudden these doors started to unlock and I started to re-access uh, myself. And, um, and I've tried to keep that sort of child thing with me ever since. But um, as soon as I start steering away from that, like with the success of Edward Sharp, for instance, um, I started to die again. And so I think the other thing that I do is I stop. I guess I could say in, in a single word, what do you do? Uh, as soon as I start to feel that, that sort of uh, partition occur, the forking and where you start to drift away from your actual soul's trajectory, just stop. Stop doing, just stop, you know, and, um, and not cow to the success of iteration or whatever and just, just stop. And uh, yeah, that's what I've been doing the last four years, just stopping. It's a beautiful answer, Alex. Okay, hi.
Thanks for coming. Uh, wow. So you, you've narrativized it really well. I must say that it's a really good description. I, I really get a sense of you. I think the going back in time to five thing is pretty cool. What, hmm. what did you find there? Did you find anything of use? Because I, I heard something, I heard something that tended towards more contrarian in nature. But is there something optimistic within you that does relate to some childhood dream of recognizing what it would be like to be truly fulfilled? You know, it's almost going to make me emotional. I think that I think that the kid that got up and without a second thought said, no, this is how you climb the, uh, the thing, you know, the jungle gym. Um, that kid uh, didn't yet understand. I mean, it was almost pre-courageous, right? Because I didn't have to necessarily have the courage because I didn't understand what the fear, what the sort of attenuative fear would be. Um, and, um, and I think going back to that place of wonder and of, uh, of pure followed impulse, um, and also to know that, you know, this, this is gonna just sort of sound extraordinarily basic and chunky, but to know that the, that impulse and impetus isn't <clears throat> bad, um, that, that the, so much of me, of my fighting with the world and uh, my tendencies toward misanthropy, uh, sort of an inverted misanthropy where I wanna save the world, but also keep it the fuck away from, from me. And, um, and, and all of that tension um, is in a lot of ways was formed by um, suddenly being sort of mentally incarcerated in badness, uh, where, where suddenly my, you know, the reflection from others to me was that my instincts were wrong and bad. And, um, and in getting back to that sort of five-year-old self, there was a, a return to, at once a return to my core and also an embrace of that core, like a, a return of that core to, you know, bringing it up to the present moment. And, um, you know, for instance, I'll, I'll never forget this. This is actually a story maybe worth relating for a second. Um, the biggest, uh, so, so, I had told the band Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, the whole thing was like, okay, we're gonna be earnest, we're gonna be children, right? Like, that's how you get into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus all the way, we're gonna be children. We're not rock stars, we're children at a show and tell. And we used to huddle up and be like, we're not rock stars. And then we'd go on stage so that we would act, it was mostly for me, right? Cause they're all able to hide behind instruments, but I kept having this sort of predilection to, to behaving like a, you know, be, being ironic and sarcastic and sort of confrontational as this armor. And I really needed to get rid of that armor because that was the whole goal of, of the band. It wasn't a band, it wasn't music, it was a social experiment for me. And I really needed to remind myself of that. 
and we do uh, Coachella and we had only played maybe seven shows up to that point. We miraculously get this sunset slot on the second biggest stage at Coachella in front of 40,000 people. And I had played in front of maybe a thousand before and I get so fucking nervous that I get on stage and I slip back into my sort of armor and I take the microphone stand and I chuck it into the photography pit, but I chuck it like, yeah, fuck you. <laughs> I chuck it like, I don't give a shit. Like I'm gonna show the audience how little I care, right? The thing bounces on the grass, does a flip and slices a guy in the front, in the very front row, slices his forehead straight open. He starts gushing blood down his face. We have not hit a note. The cameras pan onto him. Now he's on the jumbotron, bleeding from his, like bleeding from the forehead all the way down his face. And we haven't hit a note. And my heart just stops. And I'm like, oh my, oh, like, oh my God, this is, this is my moment. It, like, I get it. Like, thank you, universe. I get it. I'll never again do this. I take off my shirt, I wrap around his head, the crowd goes wild for no reason. And, uh, and we do the show and I've never uh, slipped back into that since, but I, so I guess what I'm saying is I had to, that, that five-year-old sort of would, would have just stepped on the stage and not thought about, oh, I need to protect myself, right? And, and that moment I slipped back into protecting myself and I hurt someone else. And that instance sort of was a real crucible that, that, that ended up sticking with me. Um, and I really don't think I ever slipped back into that sort of uh, armored persona uh, since then. And, um, and in that ways, it's, you know, that whole five-year-old thing, that journey has really been, um, instrumental, uh, no pun intended. Are you still seeking? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because because uh, I'm still scared. And I'm and I'm not uh, I'm not I'm not realized, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm only, you know, if I could be as free as I could be uh, as I am on stage, for instance, off stage, you know, it's this idea that we're all, you know, what I saw in the cafe that I was talking about, the gentrified cafe was just a bunch of people with masks on. That's what pissed me off. And people have this idea that when you go on stage, you put on a mask, you have a pseudonym and you go on stage and you've put on a mask. But any real fucking performance is um, is maskless. Actually, is a is a denuding, and um, I wear my mask off stage. You know, I have my array of masks for when I get off stage, and um, and and in a lot of ways we all do. And I guess I, if I could sum up the you know the 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 real rocket to my spaceship, it's uh, to burn off everyone's mask, whether or not they want it to want it to be burned off. I have a real almost anger there. So I've been really um, yeah, touched by hearing your trajectory. 
um, a few things come to me. One is when you say, I want to burn everybody's masks. And, and the question that arises, like, what happens if you just burn yours? Like, if what happens if you just stay there, everybody wearing masks and you just burned yours? And um, I don't know. Yeah, you sound like my therapist. Um. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's a very good, uh, astute uh, and... Uh, of course, in the end, that's the only thing I can do, right? Uh, and, and to be a permissionary is the whole idea, right? You go on stage, you burn your own mask in the hopes that everyone of us will be like, oh yeah, fuck it, let me burn mine too. And ultimately, that's the only path to burning off everyone else's mask, you know? But in my, in being fully transparent and honest about where the desire comes from to begin with, there is a fire that isn't just about wanting to improve myself, you know? And of course, tons of projection is at play and I'm really projecting onto everybody else and all of that, but also it's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick world. And I do think the world is sick. And um, so it's both. Mm. I think the world is sick with self-suppression. Mm. I think I was, I was also, I love the response and I, and it, um, there was something else, another thread that was coming through as we were speaking about if it's possible to be so visible, so on a literal stage um, and um, have relationality, like how is relationality when you are so aware yeah. of the projections? Because I mean, most people are projected upon in any context, even family context anywhere. So that's micro versions of that. But when you have it so widespread, is it possible to keep relational and keep open, even aware that actually most people are not even seeing you, like they're seeing their mm. image or whatever, the constructs and... Uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's part of why I had to stop actually. Um, it seems to me that uh, I'm just unpacking it over the last four years, but it seems to me there's basically uh, two choices. Uh, one is to become the identity that is projected upon you. Like, uh, I don't know Lady Gaga personally, but I use Lady Gaga as an example, where you just decide, you know what? Fuck it, I am Lady Gaga. <laughs> like, that is me. What you think is me, that is me. Um, through and through and to live that way. And I'm not knocking that. The problem for me, uh, I think, uh, at least the way that I've experienced it is that um, uh, projections are inert. Uh, they don't grow in real time. They are uh, consolidated, um, consolidated inert unities. They are images, they're a simulation, they're a simulacrum. They're, they're not necessarily 
we don't necessarily project onto someone that they will grow beyond our projection. And yet in life, that's what we want to do, or at least that's my experience of being free. And so when you're saddled with a bunch of projections that are cages, um, it becomes very difficult to, you become torn between the desire to grow beyond yourself and the desire to sort of uh, satisfy the projection. Thank you. In what ways do you feel in line with that, that you are most often misperceived? God, constantly. <laughs> constantly, yeah. Um, I shouldn't say constantly, but enough that... Uh, Enough that that alone is a driver of creativity in a certain sense, you know. Um, I remember a very sort of enlightened hippie friend of mine once said, yeah, but competition doesn't drive your creativity on any level, does it? Or no, not even competition, it was worse than that. She said something like, um, like spite. I was like, oh yeah. Oh yeah, it does. Sergeant Pepper was made in a spiteful response to pet sounds. There's a lot of you can do with spite and competition. And yet, it doesn't feel good. <laughs> it just doesn't feel that good. And so there's like, this idea of, you know, um, I think one of the, well, it's not one of the best things that's happened to me, but it's certainly just one of the things, one of the crucibles I've gone through is, is being um, uh, decimated by uh, critics. Uh, the first uh, review for my first band was started with in Rolling Stone. Uh, welcome to the newest, most annoying voice in rock and roll. Uh, and from there, it only got worse. I mean, there was some stuff that was good, but for <laughs> in large part, uh, it got worse, and it and it and it really culminated um, when I betrayed the gatekeepers of cool by switching sides from ironic, sarcastic, hip to Ernest Hippie, uh, when, you know, Pitchfork and Rolling Stone and those folks sort of found out that I was the same guy from I'm a Robot. Um, I have inside intel from friends of friends that actually wrote those reviews um, who, who, who were told explicitly that they were like just going to take me down. And the shit was vicious. And, it's kind of awesome now to have survived <laughs> that sort of thing. Because I feel like at this point, I actually don't care and I wouldn't make something out of spite now. But 
I wouldn't, and I wouldn't make something to satisfy a critic, even though that, that voice will pop up once in a while. Um, it's, it's been a crucible that's been uh, da very damaging for a very long time and then eventually enlightening. And so I feel like, you know, the point I'm at, I'm at now is just, um, I mean, it's part of why I love philosophy is that the philosopher can only get downgraded so hard in contrast to their philosophy. You know, the content is at least <laughs> on par with the philosopher, thank God. As opposed to, you know, not just pop music, but the social sphere in general, where the veneer is probably nine tenths the game, far more important than uh, whatever is uh, subsisting beneath it or being expressed beneath it. It's not what you say, it's how you say it and all of this. And um, yeah, so, I don't know if that answers your question, but um, I feel like that played a big part in my life and a big part in my creativity was this getting even, uh, trying to, you know, satisfy myself, trying to prove that I was authentic after being called inauthentic. And, um, and sometimes, you know, that, that worked, but um, at this point, it's just like, and you get constant reminders of it. The New York Times piece that came out recently about me ostensibly as a philosopher ended up with the headline, uh, pop star turns guru. Dude, <laughs> like, are you, I would troll the fuck out of an article with that title. Like I didn't, I couldn't even look at the article. I was like, oh my God, here it comes. Like they just destroyed, even though the article is beautiful, but you know, they, they gave it a title that was salacious and that would get clickbait. And, um, and the comments were like, I, I told people not to tell me what the comments were and people would tell me what the comments, like, like just how horrendous these comments were. <laughs> and so it never ends. That was just a couple months ago. And so it's like, you just, you just say, fuck it, you know? No. It is a nice, uh, Peter Lindbergh was considering at some point like doing a, uh, a hazing and talk about initiation. I mean, all this stuff is sort of initiatory, you know? Um, all this stuff is a, is a kind of <clears throat> social status anxiety hazing. Um, being told you're wrong and bad. You know, it's like the classic uh, guru moment where the guru tells you that um, everything you're doing is wrong and terrible and that you, you can't be his student anymore, their student anymore. And so you have to sleep on the guru's door or actually challenge them to a fight or do something that the guru never let you knew you were supposed to do. And then succeed at that thing, despite every, every inclination that you shouldn't even be challenging them, that you shouldn't even be continuing, that you're not worthy of being a student in the first place. And those are really the dark nights of the soul when you have no outside external sense that what you're in, 
internal clock is telling you to do is correct, you know? And, um, and I'm just, I, I, I suppose, just grateful, <coughs> grateful for continuing, whatever that thing is, whatever that fire is, whatever that unextinguishable component is that kept me from whatever it is, quitting in, 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 in any biologic or creative sense. Um, you know, I'm grateful for it. You maybe speak to, because uh, obviously there's sort of this theme coming through of how we, there's this cyclical aspect to our participation in life and you have this kind of innate fire that comes from within and it sort of channels itself through your unique self-expression or nature but then over time it starts to kind of ossify in this projection and obviously for yourself you had like thousands of people kind of placing that projection over you but even as an individual we kind of do this to ourselves where we cultivate this ideal and although it sort of stimulates the fire over time, the fire gets sort of trapped inside and then it starts slowing down. And, and there's a sense that that is kind of happening over and over again. But like you said, there's something that seems to be below that, that it's this continuity that just carries on. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can speak to how that piece of yourself has potentially changed through this process and through your life so not so much the like instantiations of it but the actual like core if that makes sense absolutely yeah um yeah we 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 we, we get thrust out upon ourselves uh, or, or it gets thrusted upon us at uh, infancy um in the mirror the mirror states the lacanian mirror states the infant, you know, is looking in the mirror and everyone gathers around and says, that's you, that, not you are you, that is you. This thing outside of yourself, this other is you. And then from there, what do you want to be? Who are you going to be? What that is not you, will you be? What will you become? What thing? And generally not, what many things will you become? Or what are the many yous you will be? But what is the one thing you will be? Express yourself, find yourself, find your voice, find your singular true expression. And then once you do, never deviate from that because then suddenly that's not you. Find you. And this incredible triangulation to a single point occurs where we start searching for this me. It's in the mirror, it's out there, it's over here, it's this thing, it's this job, but it's not inside of us. It's always outside of us. And we entrain ourselves with that projection early on. I mean, that's far more powerful in a lot of ways than any projection that could be placed on you by being on a stage. Because it's rendered at an entirely fundamental age. And um, I do think there's, something to continue with this 
Lacanian notion that the reason we individuate to begin with is because we're stripped from this beautiful unity that we have with this throbbing other, this warm other that we're unified. And it's the mother and it's the teat and it's this safety and it's this unification with this otherness. And um, then this thing keeps disappearing. The tit keeps leaving our mind. And then we start, you know, like when I was a child, when I was an infant, my dad wouldn't let my mother come to me when I was crying. It was some fucking German technique. Um, and, uh, and I would just sob in a room. And so this warm otherness would just vanish. It proved unreliable. And if this thing was unreliable, this thing that was my unity is unreliable, well, then obviously I'm going to have to figure out some other fucking unity. And I guess that unity is going to have to be me. And so I'm going to be a unified thing in and of myself that is just myself. And so this sort of sense of individualism begins to occur where I'm self-sufficient. I am me. I'm a little Marlboro child. And... Um, and yet, secretly, of course, I actually long for that other. And so I go around looking for that other. Where is this other thing really that I actually want? Of course, I'm self-sufficient and I don't need the other, but secretly I do want this other thing. And so we find it in a job or this thing, or we get married in a union. And, um, or in the state, uh, or in being a fucking, fan of sports or sublated in some unity that is uh, beyond us. And, um, and so I think that there's something in between this idea of identity and individualism, these two shields, I would call them, the shield of identity, the shield of individualism that protect us and insulate us and there's something between that and the desire to have that thing broken open and perforated. If not by the mother, which you sort of transcend as by the universe itself. I used to say, like, I'm married to the universe. And at one of my shows, actually, we married everyone together all at once to each other. It was like we had an actual, you know, uh, not a priest, but you know, someone who was uh, granted the permission by the state to marry everyone. And um, yeah, I've always been fixated on this idea of the, the, the enlarged self, the perforated self, the, the open uh, chalice that lets the universal energy sort of flow through you, the, the conduit. And that that state of being a conduit is, is part and parcel with being creative in the first place. And allowing the sort of creativity of the universe to run through you. So as opposed to being this hermetically sealed individual, allowing those perforations to widen and deepen so that there are more ingresses into the self through which the universe can pour and you can come up with more and more ideas that aren't yours, they're the universe's, but all the little angels are going, see, over here, he's, he's open. Pass it to him. And, um, and so in that sense, creativity itself, I guess, is, is a kind of solution to the question 
where yes, we're open and we're more fragile in that state, but we're also more able to receive and to, in some sense, be sublimated by the larger, the larger self. And, um, and I guess that ultimately is, has been my answer, uh, even in the case of relationships where I do really want this return to the unity with the, with the mother other, with the single individual, the marriage. Um, there's something about that, you know, that, that also simultaneously negates my sort of open conduit to the universe thing. And so in a lot of ways, um, creativity itself has become my relation to everything. And, um, and I think that that's how I've, I've dealt with the whole um, identity and individuality thing. And the reason why I'm so interested in, um, in self-immolating all the time in the name of continuing to be a conduit, conduit and, and de-encapsulating, de-hermetically sealing uh, whatever uh, identity I end up acquiring through creativity in the first place. So you get creative, suddenly it's like, I got this idea, now I am this idea, whoops, burn it, let it in again. Don't forget to let it in because otherwise, you know, I start to atrophy. That was beautifully articulated. Oh, thanks. <laughs> That was a uh, beautiful question, Tom, because what came through for me was the image of the phoenix, and it felt like it was perfectly related to what Tim initially introduced um, as you practicing a lot of life, death, rituals, Alex. Everything you've said so far has been very powerful. And uh, it's been a little hard to stay in contact when I'm kind of just taking on a lot of what you're saying and feeling that through for my own experiences. I wanted to ask the sense of stasis that it comes up when one is overly identified as the conduit, as the phoenix that remains um, flourishing rather than returning to ashes, returning to the matrix, returning to uh, the source that it is trying to birth itself from again and again as a kind of mistake, uh, uh, an eternal recurrence. Um, and you kind of mentioned earlier that I think you were referencing brand as an instance of that. Um, and brand being the kind of uh, state the static form of creativity made made just repetitious do you see philosophy as in one sense a a maturation from music seeking to express all of this creative daimonic energy in a way that it can't be Well, actually, earlier you mentioned that going on stage was a way of hopefully inviting in people to shirk off their masks, masks or to forcefully burn that off. 
And there's something so great in that, even though the invitation is so rarely taken up in art because it is easily stagnated, um, capitalized upon. Whereas philosophy, well, you spoke to it as something that can't possibly retain the veneer of social status because there's such precision, maybe. Do you, do you see philosophy as a maturation of seeking precision in this creativity so that forces of uh, the cyclical forces that are coming through, which are necessary, uh, can be maintained, I guess, like a real, a real return to those death practices, which might actually be similar to something that we've been speaking to recently in the feminine discussions that we've had, where uh, the menstrual cycle represents, what's the phase, Adriana? It's, is it the luteal phase, the phase down into decay? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's something like that returning that that returning back down into the matrix. I'm I'm not making too much sense here, but I'm trying to just like get across this question of philosophy. Where does this enter into um, in relation to all this? Yeah, um, yeah. There's a lot there. Um, well, first of all, just to touch on the philosophy thing. Um, So I can't, I'm hesitant to keep bringing this all back to, but okay, well, a couple of things. Number one, um, philosophy is not, ugh, this is gonna all sound, okay. It's not as easily co-optable, as easily <clears throat> turned into a simulation or a simulacrum of, of itself as something that is much more in a pop format as music. However, philosophy, I would say, the ascendance of memes um, speaks to an ascendance of philosophy. And I think a lot of people, without sort of really acknowledging it, um, I would say philosophy is, is in a lot of ways a new pop format. Um, podcasts, uh, memes, etc. These are sort of philosophic forms. Um, of course, Within these forms, the specificity, the content itself presents itself in much less nuance and much more directly and without sort of the, you know, the overlays of melody, uh, rhyme, and, you know, and, uh, and metaphor and, um, and speak much more directly to issues. Uh, even if they're being paradoxical, the paradox is sort of there for you to think about the paradox as opposed to sort of slowly walking down the hall faster than a cannonball. It's like, okay, so so obviously, you know, Oasis is ripping off the Beatles who are ripping off whomever and they're creating these sort of paradoxical lyrical structures. But beyond that, you don't necessarily think about it too much. It's not like uh, it necessarily, you can derive a, um, an orientation to the world vis-a-vis uh, -vis that and yet, there's something that lyrics like that do that open up your mind, um, that make you think, oh, wait a minute. Um, yeah, paradox, right. Things can feel different and be the same or be different and feel the same. Um, 
and change your life in some subtle sense. But when you are the creator of that sort of lyrical scheme and you want to say so much more, but you know you can't because you only have 16 bars. And you know you can't because then it won't rhyme. Or you know you can't because then it's just not gonna sing well. You know, a lot of songwriting is about um, uh, gibberish. So you have a song and you start going and then you start thinking, okay, what are the words that fit into and all of a sudden you're stuck in this cage of and so you have to fit these words into that, but you have all these other things to say. And so for me, it's just been a question. Like for instance, the magnetic zeros was a mathematics. Uh, Edward Sharp and the mag magnetic zeros is a mathematics I had come up with. There was a pendular uh, mathematics where zero had a certain sort of magnetism and you'd have these sort of swings across zero depending on the magnitude of zero. But beyond saying that in a radio interview, uh, I couldn't expound on it unless I was gonna get really more seriously into philosophy. And then of course, if I expound on it, the audience for that is just gonna drop off a cliff, right? And I like that. I think that that's one of the things that appeals most to me about philosophy, um, or being in a room as small as this, um, is that we can have conversations like this. There's almost a distinct correlation between the scope of uh, a social group and the amount of nuance that can be uh, retrieved from conversations. And, um, and yeah, uh, so I guess I just say that, you know, that, that in a certain sense, it was just time for me to, I'll say another thing that's more personal, actually, this might be more interesting, uh, personally, anyway. When I was about 13, 14, in this sort of cascade of I'm a bad kid, um, which I ended up, by the way, taking on as my personality, I was like, okay, I'm the bad guy. Uh, my dad wanted to send me to a uh, handiwork school. He said I was not an intellectual. I was not cut out for thinking. I needed to go work with my hands and learn a trade. Uh, and I was 13. This crushed me. I was like, you know, felt so misunderstood. I was like, Dad, my whole thing against school is because I'm so smart. I'm too smart for school. But he wouldn't, you know, you don't listen to a 13-year-old when they say these things. And so again, I felt um, like I was put in a box this time, not just bad, but dumb. And so I, in some ways, kept all of my intellectual pursuits hidden until probably four years ago. And then I was just like, okay, it's time to sort of come out, as it were, uh, and, uh, and just sort of say the things that I'm thinking without dressing them up in melody, without dressing them up in lyrics. And, um, and one of the added benefits is that uh, the audience for that and the patience for that kind of shit is uh, much smaller than it is for uh, songs. And I like that. So I want to see if I can remember a few themes that have come up and orient this in 
Well, as you know, I mean, this has all been very generative, but let's say an, an onwards generative direction. First of all, one image that anyone can see if they type in, you know, Edward Sharp and the magnetic zeros and watch a YouTube video of you performing on stage with the band. And then you can read the comments and often there'll be a comment that says, you know, someone's got a timestamp for a particular moment and maybe you're with the audience, maybe it's at a certain moment in the, the lull or maybe you've introduced a bit of silence or there's a, an unexpected repetition of something in the song home, for instance, something that's kind of like a peak moment of, in some sense, a coming into unity. This is mm. one of the themes that sort of come up. And I want to presence that from a philosophical perspective or a broad perspective. Um, on the one hand, there's something of a return to realness that you're wanting to get at. And maybe that realness could be understood as the moment where that breaks, or maybe it's that moment of return, but there's something about that orientation towards and then, and then the depart, the being with, and then the departing, there seems to be a, a reality mm. to that cycle. Mm. And so we could look at it with, you know, from the one, one perspective, like a kind of, there's a desire for realness. And at the same time, the whole context is one which is deeply there's a there's a fantasy about it there's a mythos there's something and and there's something so enlivening about that for people in many ways that's why they've all come there right they've had to get some money they've paid they've come along right they're engaging with looking at the band and there's a song maybe there's you know many but there's a particular song for some people and that's the climax for them and and that song has lyrics and a feeling and itself is a sort of like a, a, a reflection on and, and, a, and a conduiting and a manifestation of some sense of itself in the song, like home, for instance, of a return home and a finding our home with each other and the recognition of that being with each other as in some sense sufficient for a profound um, dwelling in a kind of ecstatic peace. There's like an ecstatic peace that comes with, with that song. Mm -hmm. There seems to be some of, and, uh, and we know that, you know, ecstatic pieces don't last. <laughs> right. And yet, and yet there's something, you know, Jung's got a quote, you know, the whole world wants peace and yet the whole world prepares for war, these mm. types of things. And then you've got like other real realists of international relations being like, if you want peace, you've got to prepare for war. <laughs> and so, mm -hmm. so there's something impossible and yet possible in the sense of there is a duration and we can cohere and organize to meet in a remembrance and an ecstatic cathartic realization together. And I want to link this and sort of put it back over to you with there's this other thing that's come through has been this uh, this burning away of projections. Mm. But I guess I just want to point out that there's something about the, there's something at once that's about a relinquishing of that mask and at the same time uh, an affirming of that being here for this short time with each other and only in that stepping into that moment of, in some sense, infinity, mm. can we actually be there at all and and 
and that can be like I, it can be done and known as impossible and yet possible through in some sense putting on that mask which is not so much a mask as it is the the um and a way of seeing as like a key as like an unlocking which is a return mm -hmm. and so they just seem to me really powerful frames that are all coming together through what's been presenced here and i'm just curious how you reflect on that yeah i mean that that's very in line with um uh everything i've been working on uh philosophically um it's very hegelian um i completely balk and disagree with anyone who would say that uh, that a return to the one is impossible and as you're noting, it's not impossible because it happens. It's impossible because the duration is short. And yet we cannot lend temporal primacy to anything just because something lasts but a blip. And then we return to some mundane life. Doesn't mean the mundane life gets primacy over the blip. It doesn't mean the blip didn't happen or that the blip was fake. We have to be very careful not to lend temporal primacy to um, duration. And so those moments are return. They're returns to exactly the thing we always wanted, exactly the thing we are afraid of revealing that we want. And so we only go for it whenever, are you going, are you going? That's why the instigator, the permissionaries of those moments are so special and so important. It's like the amazing uh, dancing man at uh, on YouTube that you can see at the um, at uh, Sasquatch Fest. If you guys have seen this, he starts dancing and he's going crazy. He's a classic example of a permissionary. And then these kids come up, they start making fun of him, and they're dancing, making fun of him. And then all of a sudden, within like sixty seconds, there's thousands of people dancing crazy. But it took the first guy and then the permissionary's little accomplices to get the whole thing going. But once it's going, everyone's like, okay, cool. If we're all giving away our masks for this moment, if we're all going to sublate ourselves to the presence of this, this one, this unity, we'll do it all together and we'll do it and we'll be safe because we're doing it all together. And that's why the experience of being at a show or being together with people is, is so powerful is because there's always that potential for a sublation into a one. There's always the potential for a return just for a moment, you know? And um, someone says something fucked up or does something like wonky or lame and all of a sudden, the, the matrix disappears and everyone returns to their sort of, you know, like hyper insecure, uh, unstable Marlboro man, uh, you know, egg. And uh, then walk around like, oh, that was fun. Yeah, that was fun. No, motherfucker, that was fucking life changing. But we can't say it, you know, because then it would let you know that I actually really need that thing. And uh, so we go about our lives and we just continue and we very casually wait for the next uh, instance of that to occur. Um, and uh, philosophers and, you know, in philosophy, there's a very similar strain to what there was in, in rock and roll in my experience, which is this sort of very cool sort of sarcastic, ironic, um, aloof philosopher who would say that those return to ones are, uh, those returns to one are uh, totally imaginary. 
but they're just afraid <laughs> that um, number one, that duration may not be as important as what they think. And number two, they're afraid to admit to themselves their desire to actually engage in one, to be with a one, to be part of a larger sort of self. And, um, and yet the whole Hegelian idea, the whole idea of this oscillation between becoming and being and becoming and being is that each time we return to one of these ones, one of these determinate beings, they are isomorphic to being itself, to the original of the void, the nothingness of everything. And the reason they are isomorphic or equivalent is because what they all have in common is a coherence. There's a sudden, almost like you can feel the glomming. And in fact, in a, in a, in a show, um, like a rock and roll show, you can almost um, add to your chances of creating a unification moment by making sure that the air conditioning is off, making sure that there's enough moisture in the air to conduct enough electricity so that everyone actually feels like they're part of the same flesh. And um, yeah, and I know a number of bands who do that and you know we're one of them, but it's like to get the place hot enough so that we're all inside of the same body. Um, yeah. But then of course, there's the moment that where every, like the oneness sort of ends and everyone's walking away. And um, what an interesting moment for everyone. What a existential um, confrontation, subtle as it is, but to experience a oneness and a unification and then to sort of walk out of it. And, um, and I think that's something that, you know, should be spoken about more uh, and, and with honesty, because it's such a precarious and uh, intimate and almost scary desire. How precarious? Um, in the sense that if we admit to ourselves that we want that, that the shields of identity and individualism um, suddenly rupture as they are exposed as being shields, as opposed to being intrinsic to us, such that we're essentially saying to ourselves and to the world, um, I'm, I actually have desires. I have, I actually long for this, this thing I actually have a lack. I'm actually not as filled in my uh, sublime unity as I let on with my name and my sort of encapsulated state. I actually long for, I long to be perforated. And um, yeah, and I think that that's a, a challenging bind to negotiate. So what would perforation look like right now? In some sense, right we're, yeah, like our collective attention is on the identity or story of Alex. Right, mm -hmm. and and the way that we're relating to that is in, in a listening mode, mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's a rich story. It 
it carries with it a lot of the similarities of our, our common experience, I think, but well described. And so here we have this moment where we're doing a, a kind of meta discussion about identity and we're participating in it in an interesting way. And I think that distinction is probably on the exoteric and the esoteric line, right? The autopoetic self-creation thing and how it makes contact with how we are exploring that together. Now that precariousness that you speak of, I see it more as a limiting aspect. There's a an essay I, I read a long time ago from uh, Emerson, and he said, uh, genius is always sufficiently the enemy of genius. There, there's something about um, building a signal so strong that it does unify a collective that then prevents a further kind of individuation process. There's a capturing almost of an identity, of a collective identity, the characteristics of the ego, the collective ego associated with that energy right, that was present. So um, since you have withdrawn from the making of music and you're now exploring this psychological space where music and uh, the music of it is a different kind of texture, right? it's playing in different kinds of impressions and keys in our mind. What is it that what is it that we're collectively doing if we're doing anything at all right now in participating in your identity together? What can come of that and what is precarious in that aspect of it? Um, I'm curious about those kinds of things. Well, I did a experiment recently on uh, my Instagram where I let um, anyone uh, be me. They had to win a little contest. <clears throat> and then I gave him my Instagram. Incidentally, the guy who won uh, could pass for me. And um, yet, <laughs> oh man, it was tough for me because the things he wanted to post and say were oh, just very difficult, especially considering that other people were going to think he was actually me. <laughs> My ego was in, a, in fits thinking that people would think this guy was me. Um, and that was a great, a great sort of self-immolation. But in terms of what we could do here, I mean, most of this is, you know, in a certain sense, performative. Um, and, and also in a sense though, there's, there, there's a performative aspect to me opening up and self-perforating uh, a certain like mildly permissionary sort of thing, I would hope. Um, and, you know, the extent to which we can experience um, a coherence together uh, in this sort of diasporic digital uh, form is actually foreign to me. Um, I've, had, I've had maybe some moments like that, but um, I don't know to what extent we can achieve that uh, right now except to hold space for each other and probably we would all have to share um, and, you know, and, and share intimately regarding our own 
regarding our own senses of identity and uh, and fears um, and losses of identity and um, and ultimately death. I mean, one thing I guess we haven't spoken directly about is is death and death initiation. That's very um, very central to this. And um, yeah, I don't know if I if I answered that, but to say that. I'm not sure what we can do right now beyond what we're doing, uh, unless we were to all sort of chant this together, you know. Can I do some chanting? <laughs> What's funny, you know, you, I'll tell a very quick funny story. I, uh, talking about chanting, I came up with a song uh, in my haze of just writing stuff that ended up being on the first Edward Sharp album and I would sing it every night every every we would even open the show with it and it's very powerful I did not know what it meant though I was just invented a chant and it was Om Nashime and um but it felt at once dangerous so it had this everything we're talking about it it felt very dangerous but very transformative and liberating Om Nashime, Om Nashime. I don't know what it was. And even that mystery added to this danger. The precarity of identity is what I felt. And yet the, the immolation into sort of a larger self. And we would chant it, all of us, every night for months and months and months. And someone said, you know, that sounds like Sanskrit. And finally, I was like, oh, let me try and figure out what this means. And I did some research. And there's no direct, exact translation. But more or less, it means, yes, my destruction. <laughs> every night we were chanting yes my destruction with absolute celebration in our hearts and I guess in some way that's what I'm relaying um, is that 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 chant I still say it I chanted that before this meeting here I have a couple of things I didn't chant it like oh yeah but I but I said it to myself like three times before we started because I want to be a conduit. I don't want to be myself, whatever that is. I want to be the uh, vessel, you know? And so the destruction is the destruction of all of the sort of uh, ossified operations that are inhabiting me that I want to sort of, uh, you know, sunder before being filled. Yeah, so you, you grew up with uh, Indiana Jones. And the temple Hell of yeah. doom, you know that scene, and when he's taking the heart out of the guy, that he's chanting that Om Nam Shiva, right? So this Om Nam Shiva, okay, yeah, yeah it's yeah, yeah, that's similar, Nashi and Namshi, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like uh, Larry David right now, uh, but but yeah, he he's got a good uh, mantra episode, um, but yeah, no, they're they're exactly the, that Namshi Nashi derivation of Sanskrit means something like uh, dis destroy destruction. Shiva, yeah. Okay, okay but well, how is that related hang to on, duration? Hang, hang, on. hang on, hang on, nope. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here because we've we've got 20 minutes left to go, and um, and uh, there's I mean we can we can continue the conversation or we could. Um, enter into some reflection uh, about it. There's the question you asked Alex Tyler is, is actually a question I feel like very drawn to drawn to respond to because, you know, I have an image of what this is and what it can be. 
and um it's you know it's not just about right here right now and so in that sense i feel like that's important to bring in but if you're feeling something with respect to furthering you know what you're well, touching it, it, on with just duration. together yeah any yeah. any good death includes the continuation of life so let's just twist that together right so it's what so there is an ongoingness when you talk about holding space right you're holding you're drawing your vowels out you're you're longing for a continuation of contact right so I, i'm curious about that like the the actual knowing of of uh of how to hold how long to hold and when to let go this is uh I mean, this is the crux of the matter for me. Uh, and that includes attention, right? How much time you spend. Um, yeah. And yeah. the reason why I'm jumping in is because there's a return to in this. Okay. So uh, the the show has been going on, right? The finale's <laughs> happened and now people are walking away leaving the stage just like I did once Alex when I actually uh, saw you play I've never told you this um, but I I when you opened for Mumford and Sons in 2011 in Brisbane I went there I went there with some friends and so anyway it's a beautiful stage that one is what is it called the valley stage or something and so you've got the audience on the big hill oh, yeah. so you leave and you walk away up the hill and whatever so as you're walking back and you're returning to uh, well, what comes next? There's a sense of leaving that more fantastical fantasy moment. And now what? So it's something similar in some sense to a conversation about integration with respect to psychedelic experience, or at least what people often talk about with that. Like, what does this mean for my actual life? Now I go back to it. And in this case, part of the part of the necessary to include in this in this conversation for me is oh my god incredible deja vu here wow something to do with world of warcraft what the fuck that doesn't make any sense uh but there's something of an inclusion now in how this might relate to broader other structures right that can be in some sense spoken about and analyzed without you know, we don't need to be all thinking about like life and death and ecstasis. It's, it'd be things like economics and this type of stuff. And that's also mm -hmm. something, of course, which is interest of yours, Alex, something I know you, you uh, bring to uh, light in terms of conversations. And that's something we share in common. And there's been a big part of reflections many of us have shared here and, and sort of projects of understanding over a number of years. And so I want to give a moment of, of deep thanks for, for you being here and sharing and, and everyone for being here and involving yourself in this. I also want to say, if people do listen to this, if we do share it, but for everyone here, there's a necessity when it comes to dialogical process, when it comes to conversation, there's a, there's limitations in on, on, on the channel. There's limitations of, of time and space in some sense. And so ways of experimenting with what it is to invite in others with whatever to share. And we can talk about value. We can talk about lots of things, but experimenting with processes of collectively coming to, we, we can come to understand ourselves more through understanding others, of course, because I recognize, you know, like to, just to think that, you know, if only we could all talk, if only we could all share as intimately as well, how's that going to work on a stage with a thousand, right? What are you going to do? Get in a big circle? It's Same. not going to quite, well, <laughs> you can get it. Yeah, you, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. 
Exactly. Um, yeah. But one of the things I'm trying to get at here with, with structures like this is, well, what does, I mean, scale very gently, but in terms of knitting together, intertwining different individuals in different network contexts with different protocols and practices for coming into know each other when we have so many here that are about everyone expressing and sometimes you know in the feminine conversations we experimented for the first time with there were moments in that conversation where it was asked that for the women to share and particularly in response and then and then for the men to share and that was met with oh, okay we kind of not so sure about that except that but what that brings up is something very interesting, right, to reflect on. And so in the context of trust, where we can return to recognizing what was present as we tried different things uh, to recognize potentially the different virtues of different constraints with respect to a broader vision and project of being able to progressively gather together and connect with who we most want to connect with. I mean, it just seems it seems valuable so it's definitely worth remembering that this is all very much in an experimental structural context and um and i i just want to i guess just finish that just by honoring the openness with which you've stepped into this alex and um and i i really do think there's something there's something here for this um i think there is something to what the this network can achieve in terms of being able to share all kinds of voice crafting together, but where you do have something that looks like a collective collective drawing forth um, of, of another. And what does that mean then for um, being able to share value into the commons in a way that's valuable for, for everyone involved and doesn't mean we lose any of the other stuff. And, um, and so maybe it would be worthwhile here now considering uh, we can turn the recording button off on or not for this. I'm conscious of time. Usually some of us stay back afterwards, but we can have, we can experiment. We can, we can uh, converse now about what kinds of integration processes then for this kind of dynamic might be most helpful. You know, when there, when there has been an effort made for, for so much, for so much listening. And um, in, in that sense, there's, there's in one sense, Alex, you mentioned like uh, being the conduit and, and the vessel for basically performing the truth of your response as you could in the moment based on how it is that you can see and feel and remember and all of that. And then there's also a vessel type listening on behalf of those who are opening up to be borne along by the flow of another. And so we're, we're dancing with these dynamics of, you know, Tyler's mentioning when to hold and when to let go, when to, when to you know, we've spoken about confrontation and surrender a little bit, Alex, as well. There's something of these types of dynamics at play. And so, but it's just worth remembering from a meta perspective that there is a, there is a, there is an experimentation with the constraints of the actual gathering itself that I think is relevant to a commons context beyond just the 11 of us here. Yeah. And so, you know, and that I'm really, really grateful for everyone st stepping into because you know, at least from the perspective of my integration of this, you know, this is, it's beautiful to be with, and I've really enjoyed the deep listening. But while, you know, but I, but I remember all the rest of, of what's to come with this, and, and I'm feeling very much open to the evolution of this, as well as all manner of ways we can um, 
we can invite further interaction. So thank you all for being here. And I'd just like to thank Alex again. And just while we have the recording button still on, just to invite Alex to share any reflections you have about this experience. And then we'll wrap it up, I think. Yeah, thanks so much for this. It's been wonderful. Uh, was very much looking forward to this. And, uh, and, um, and thanks all for your questions. The thing that's coming up, I think, just for me that I want to say in, in the sense of, well, where do we, what, what would be the uh, quote unquote takeaway here? Um, and also the question of duration and all these sorts of things that have been touched on in the last couple moments and the coming together and the unity and the oneness and how long to hold on and when to let go and all these sorts of things are existential questions. Um, and, and I mean that in the sense that um, every ending is a kind of death. Our, I, I strongly believe that our unconscious processes, um, every sunset existentially, and um, the end of a party, the end of this, and that there's something in us that wants this not to end, that wants the unity to continue, that wants to experience the duration forever, that wants to hold on to the relationship, to the identity, to the brand, to whatever that collapsed inert unity you've achieved through your dent of hard work, through your creativity, to hold on to that thing. And yet, if we hold on to that thing, that very thing ossifies and becomes dead, and then we're holding on to this death itself. Um, and I have a lot of thoughts about that. And um, as Tim you know, knows, and as Daniel knows, and, and how sort of that relates to the behavior of cancer itself and, and all of that, uh, there's, a, there's incredible irony in wanting to stay alive in wanting to keep something going, um, in that that very desire can be the very thing that kills the thing and, um, and produces sort of death of other things um, and an extractive, generally extractive mindset. And so I guess what I'm saying is <laughs> to tie this all back together is that in these uh, moments of unification, in these moments of um, collapsing into an identity and then um, repulsing out of it. They each have their time and their moment. And in so many ways, this is like music. It is like being like playing jazz or creating in the moment with people where you have to detect when it's time to let go. And there's no real right way to say it. There's no real equation to that, but we know it when it happens. And when it happens, if we don't let go, we slip into brand, we slip into sort of a death grip. And, um, and it's this amazing irony um, because that very thing that we found uh, that gives us a eternalization, a taste of, the, of eternity, if we hold on to it is death itself and uh, spells our own sort of demise. And so, um, you know, we're all feeling, for instance, that, okay, this is probably about to be over. <laughs> and 
why we feel that way? Well, we're also probably tired and hungry, but you can also feel the energy in a room when it's like, okay, I think, I think something just happened. I think something's happening where we're all like, okay. And we all have a certain time span and you can sort of predict an hour and a half is going to do that. But it's kind of amazing that, um, that you can feel something like that happen in a room or you're at a party and suddenly everyone's like, ah, okay, it's time to go home. Um, and there's this existential sort of crisis to that, especially if you just had the most amazing time and you wanted to go on, you just did an encore, you told another joke, you know, you just want the party to keep going or, hey, stay for another drink or whatever the case is, or let's work this out with your partner, right? Or the breakup just extends for nine months when it should have been over two years ago. These questions are... I think in some ways speak directly to the mastery of life. When to let go, when to hold on, when to let go, when to hold on. And the closer we get our decisions overlay over the map of the actual time that it was right to let go and to hold on, the more we become masters of life. You know? And to do that though, to really map on top in sync with the topology of decision, we must be okay with the existential collapse at any moment. We must be okay with death, the little deaths, the big deaths, all of them. Thank you for being here. Over the years, this project has received small but vital support on Patreon at patreon.com voicecraft. And it's still a crucial way to signal that you value this work and want to see more of it. Patreon support primarily goes towards media creation for the podcast and YouTube channel. Voicecraft has never run ads or had sponsors and needs your support to create a more sustainable context for vital conversations, transformative philosophy and the cultivation of culture. It tries to get at the very essence of addressing the meta-crisis we're a part of. It's a big project. There's a lot of people tackling it from all over the place. But what's happening here is important. So again, patreon.com slash voicecraft is where you can sponsor the creation of new content. Thank you to all past and current patrons for supporting this work. Finally, I'm excited to announce that in October this year, I'll be hosting a six-week online course titled Transformative Philosophy. I'll be joined by a group of outstanding faculty, many of whom have appeared on the podcast before. Sign up to the mailing list at voicecraft.io to receive notification on when early bird enrollments open in August. Until next time, thank you for listening.